you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Ephesians. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we do have a number of church Bibles. You'll p- please feel free to go and grab one from the back there. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep it and make it your own. This morning, I want to read to you from the second half of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 22 to the end of that chapter as we begin to think more about the calling of husbands to imitate Christ and all that that means for us, both in terms of our faith and our relationship with Jesus, but also for our families and all the implications there are for men especially. Let's read then from Ephesians 5, verse 22, to the end of this chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we began last week by thinking about the first section there, just the first few verses where Paul directly addressed wives, the women in the congregation, almost all of whom would have been married. And now he turns his attention to the husbands. And I want us just to think a little bit about why these instructions are so necessary in the world into which Paul wrote. Why does he speak so clearly to these wives and to these husbands, just reminding them and refreshing them in terms of their respective roles and attitudes that they ought to have to their spouses. And I think beginning with the wives, one of the things that would have been a characteristic of a person coming to know Jesus, a woman especially coming to know Jesus and becoming a Christian, in this ancient context, this context in which women had few rights, in which they were often regarded as a second, kind of second tier of society beneath men and were viewed somewhat as the property or possessions of their husbands to do all that their husbands required. Within that world, Paul had preached a gospel that had elevated women and given them a sense of profound worth and dignity before God. There's a very famous verse in one of Paul's other letters in Galatians 3, where he wrote that there is neither Jew nor Greek. So where there had once been this extraordinary division between the Jewish people and the Gentiles, he says that division has been eradicated. We all have access to God. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. So the incredible distinction between slaves and something like two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves and then the free men and the fact that they all had equality before God is here articulated. 
There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the women had experienced the profound sense of the dignity of knowing that they stood as equals in the congregation of the church before a loving God, that there was no distinction, that God didn't give preference to men over women, as had been true within Judaism where there had been the the various concentric um, circles within the temple of access for men and then women in the outer courts along with the Gentiles and so on. And of course, just remembering back to Ephesians 1, we were here some time ago, but in Ephesians 1, Paul had said these amazing words about these believers. He said that Christ had, that God had predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He says, all of you, men and women, under God, you have the status of sonship. A son was the most favored heir in the family, able to inherit everything, all of the wealth of the family. And he says, within God's economy, all of you have the status of being like sons, men and women. And so these women had heard this truth, and the gospel had kind of washed over them and transformed how they thought about themselves. And the danger, of course, then, was that they might take this a step further. We have a saying in English, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The image of bathing a baby in a tub of water, and then as you discard the water, the dirty water, you accidentally throw the baby out with it. And of course, the image there is, is really um, easy to grasp in terms of Well, naturally, these women might have begun to imagine that because they'd experienced profound dignity in the face of God, that now all of that translated in terms of their relationships, that now they could relate to their husbands in a new way, and that all the kind of distinctions, and perhaps you could call it the hierarchy of authority and submission within marriage, all of that was gone as well. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you've you've misunderstood even though there is this extraordinary sense of equality of worth as persons before God, that doesn't eradicate the differences that exist between us in the way that we function. And that's, of course, true in society, isn't it? We believe that all people are equal, made in the image of God. But we also believe that there are differences in the way we conduct ourselves in society. We have differences of role and of status and of hierarchy. And without that, society would dissolve into absolute anarchy and chaos. So the two things aren't, don't contradict. He says this to wives, but then he turns to the husbands and think about this. These men had grown up in a world that gave them the deepest sense of male entitlement and of superiority. And in their coming to Jesus, their minds needed to be washed their lives needed to be totally restructured to begin to see things in a new way. That sense of entitlement that these men had grown up with naturally led to bad marriages. I'll give you a couple of examples that I came across in reading some of the commentaries. Xenophon, an ancient historian from a few hundred years prior, had lived in Athens, and he records a conversation between Socrates, the philosopher, and a man named Critobulus. And Socrates says to to Critobulus. He says, is there anyone to whom you commit more affairs of importance than you commit to your wife? In other words, is there anyone in your life who you entrust more with the work that you have to do than your wife? To which Critobulus answers, there is not. No, she's, she's the most important person to him in terms of him leading and governing all that his responsibilities. And Socrates asks him, is there anyone with whom you talk less? 
Critobulus answers, there are few or none, I confess. You get a little window into marriage in the ancient world. Women tended to be married in their early teens, 14 or so years of age, to men who might be 10, 15, 20 plus years older. They were not, it was not a companionship of equals in which friendship was the dominant characteristic. It was very much a case of a man taking a woman into his house almost as his possession or property to give birth to his children and to govern his household under his supervision and oversight in a way that did not necessarily encourage a relationship in which they would even converse. They wouldn't talk to each other necessarily. Shortly after the era of the New Testament, there were many um, Jewish teachings put together in a collection called the Talmud. And uh, there is a moment in the Talmud that describes some of the reasons why a husband could divorce his wife. And he was allowed to divorce her for any physical defect. And it gives examples there like excessive perspiration. Just a little bit too much BO and displeases, to him, displeases him and he thinks, this is it, I'm done with this woman. Or a mole. You know, she didn't have that mole when we got married. One or two summers have passed. She's been exposed to the sun. This mole has appeared. She no longer pleases me. I will divorce this woman. Another example is given of offensive breath, which I imagine was widespread in the ancient world, given that they hadn't been have dentistry or even toothbrushes or, or uh, Colgate, as we now use these days. So you think that, that there were so many ways in which men experienced something of the, the rights and superiorities of their day-to-day life, especially with respect to their wives. And to that, Paul speaks emphatically. Husbands, love your wives. Now, if that was true of them, what about us? The world has changed beyond recognition, Right? But I'm not so sure that things have changed all that much. And I think that if Paul were writing today, I think he'd he'd largely just write the same things. That on the one hand, we need to see that the Bible is very clear and emphatic when it says that the husband is a leader in his home. That he has this role of headship in his home. That he describes the wife's role as calling to submit to him. And that if if you try and explain away that language, the entire passage begins to make no sense or have no importance or meaning to us at all. And as I showed you last week, whenever Paul talks about marriage and he talks about the givens that exist between husband and wife within the home, he doesn't root it in in, in terms of just practical wisdom or or culture. He always goes back to Genesis chapter 2, the way God made things before sin entered the world. And he does it here in this chapter. He quotes that verse from Genesis 2 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Even in that verse, there is an indication that God intended for husbands to be leaders within their home. Think about it. Why does it not say that the, the woman shall leave the home and be joined to her husband? The reason why it specifies that a man shall leave is because the ancient world viewed things through the lens of households. He had been part of his father's household. He leaves his father in order to initiate and begin a new household of which he is the head or leader or responsible. And that is there in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are many other clues in that chapter that indicate God's intention for the husband's leadership role within marriage and within the household. And so we need to reaffirm, especially today, 
given that if, if they were glimpsing the reality of equality then, the seeds were sown by the New Testament that have changed the world now such that we take that as a, as a given, as something that we take for granted in society, and all of this thanks to Paul's letters mainly. But the world has also thrown the baby out of the bathwater and sought to, to completely eradicate the differences between men and women, and we need to keep affirming this. This is scriptural, that there are differences, God-given differences. But on the other hand, just as Paul spoke to husbands then, he speaks to us now, and I think what we need to understand today is that if a husband's called to lead, we have to see an entirely new definition of leadership. We are terrified of authority, especially male authority, because men have historically been so prone to the abuses of their position, to the domineering and bullying and aggressive and controlling forms of leadership under which the weaker people have suffered, be that weaker in society or in wealth or in any other capacity. And even just physical strength gives a man the ability to dominate his household very often and assert himself in a way in which everyone else can be afraid or can be crushed or can be oppressed. And it seems to me, you know, we, this hasn't gone away. One of the most famous individuals among teens, at least at the moment, is an individual who is a self-professed misogynist, a hater of women, and has gained unbelievable popularity with boys. And of course, this stuff is dangerous. It's, it's, it's absolutely vile. And yet, the world is always ready for another strong man like this to arise. And Christ, he says, here in, in Ephesians, he says, Christ is our teacher. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he says in verse 25. Then verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. And so what we have to do, friends, and this is what our focus is now, in order to begin to understand what Paul's saying here, you've got to redefine leadership. And the way in which we redefine leadership is through the lens of love. That's how Paul describes it here in this passage. And I think that was radical then because it was not a given that a husband would love his wife. He might love his mistress or mistresses. He would not necessarily love his wife in this context in Ephesus. But it seems to me to be radical now because as I look out upon the world, I do not see men who are ready and willing to love in the way that Christ loves. I think as we see, we see a lot of self-serving desires, selfish desires. Men who have actually largely lost the concept of what, what love is biblically defined. And so what we have to do in order to understand this, we spoke to wives last week. Now we address the husbands. And this is relevant to all of you men, many of whom either are married or will be married. And of course, the relevance trickles out to all of us in terms of how we think about these things. And what I want to show you is how then does Christ's love express itself as a, in, in leadership? And I'm going to give you four answers. And the first one is this. The, love, the leadership of Christ is, is characterized by sacrificial love. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. He's referring there to the death of Jesus on the cross. Let me ask again, why is it that we so distrust authority in the day and age in which we live? So that that it tends to be viewed as something of a dirty concept, a tainted word. And I think it's because we can look at the history of the world and survey the scene around us, and we see the way in which so often those in positions of power and authority, if they are not massively restricted by legal codes and systems, those in in positions of power and authority typically use others to serve themselves, to make themselves more wealthy, to make themselves more powerful, to make their own lives easier. And this has been true throughout the history of the world. You all know of the pyramids of Egypt, built something like four and a half thousand years ago. And of course, they were built to exalt certain leaders, the pharaohs, perhaps as as tombs for individuals who died or their families. And yet they were built at the expense of the lives of potentially hundreds or thousands of slaves who would have passed away in the construction of these great monuments to, to man's pride. And yet the world hasn't changed that much, has it? We're four and a half thousand years later, we have this great worship event that takes place every four years called the World Cup. And as we build the stadiums of these temples of worship to honor our little idols, the sacrifices that have been offered up for the construction of those stadiums were something like four or five hundred people who, who died in, in the building of the stadiums in the last World Cup. And you think this is what happens. This is man's natural inclinations coming out. The desire to, the, of the powerful typically to oppress and crush the weak because we use others to serve ourselves the more power we have. You know, as the saying goes, that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Until you meet Jesus, of course. Christ reversed this completely. Nobody in the history of the world has had more power than Christ. The Son of God in human flesh. And yet he says of himself, for example, in in Mark 10, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what we celebrate upon his death on the cross, that the Son of Man did not come to lord it over humanity, but rather to offer himself in the role of a servant by allowing himself, by deliberately going to the cross. It's what Paul says here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If there's one thing you have to understand about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he was not a victim. That he willingly went to the cross. He did experience the oppression of that moment. But he had determined, he had set his face to go to the cross. And allowed himself to be, to experience the oppression and the brutality and the crushing weight of, of all the sin of the world to come upon him as he died in our place upon the cross. And so Christ, by that act and by his whole life of service, completely inverted all of our ways of understanding power. That it is not the, the image of the, of the powerful coming in to crush and oppress the weak, but rather of the powerful coming in as a servant to take the place of the weak you and I, and to offer himself in our place upon the cross. And that has utterly 
the image of the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross has totally transformed the Christian imagination of how we understand authority and power. This is why when Paul can talk to husbands like he does here and say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he is without question talking about the call for a husband to offer himself in a sacrificial way to the service of his wife. What does that look like? Well, perhaps you can think of the grand gesture, and I think that it is valid to say, well, look, a husband ought to even be willing to die for his wife if necessary. And perhaps if we survey history, we'll see countless examples of that where men have willingly laid down their lives in the context of war for the sake of their loved ones. But in some ways, I think the grand gestures are easier because they get mixed up with heroism and all the kind of pride that that men inherently have in terms of status and glory and honor and all those kinds of things. The harder thing, by far, is to begin to allow the concepts of self-sacrifice to shape your daily habits, to die to yourself every day, giving preference to the will and desires and needs of your wife. So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, I have little doubt that he, he meant here a posture of self-emptying, of service towards a wife that is mirrored upon the, the way that Christ has served us. And it seems to me that if husbands took this seriously, all the force of the kind of gender wars or the wars between the sexes, all the force of that would melt away instantly. Because the husbands would not be viewed as oppressors, but rather as servants for the good and the benefit, especially of their wives. It is, first of all, sacrificial love. Number two, it is also an exclusive love. Listen to these words. Verse 26, he says of Christ that he might sanctify her, the church having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, what is Paul describing here about the nature of the love of Jesus towards the church as his bride? At first, when you read that passage, it sounds like a lot of religious language, doesn't it? Sanctify, holy, without blemish. And of course, that is, that is true. That's the right way to read it and understand what Jesus has done for his bride, the church, that he's made us his own by cleansing us of our sin. But actually, if you look again, everything that Paul says here is really a description of the way in which Jesus as a bridegroom engaged in a kind of courtship ritual towards his bride, the church. Think about these phrases. The first is, that he might sanctify her. And the word sanctify literally means to set apart. It's like he's saying that Christ singled out the church as his bride. He set his eyes upon her, which means when you take it down to the level of an individual, he chose you. He wanted you. He said, I want you to be mine. He sanctified her, calling her to himself. He then says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And of course, some people look at that and think, well, that's just talking about baptism. But actually, there's a very strong argument you can make that what he's talking about here 
was the bridal bath that took place before the wedding ceremony. I'll give you an example of that in Ezekiel 16. This is God talking about his relationship to Israel. In other words, Christ to the church. It says, when I passed by you again, and Israel is depicted as a young woman, naked, dirty, battered, broken. It says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you're at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. In the ancient world, when a bride was preparing for her wedding day, she would, she would, she would have a bath. Bathing wasn't a daily occurrence as it may be now. And so obviously she's being prepared for her husband. And it says here, Christ, he said, I, I sanctified you. In other words, I singled you out and made you my own. I bathed you to prepare you for the wedding day. Then Paul says, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. The language of presentation has a real formality to it in the New Testament. It's used when Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby for circumcision. So it's really talking here about the moment that takes place. Like we see, all of us are seen in a wedding ceremony when a bride is presented to the groom, that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And of course, this is imaging the beauty of a bride on her wedding day. I have, as a pastor, been involved in many, many weddings over the years and had the privilege of standing at the head of the aisle as the bride has made her way from, through the doors into the, the, into the church and seen the radiant beauty. Without exception, every bride always looks magnificent on her wedding day. And this was true then. Listen again to um, Ezekiel 16, that same passage describing Israel. God says, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. All of that is describing the way in which God has made Israel or Christ has made the bride, the church, beautiful for himself. Now, Listen, the point I'm trying to make, you know, it's not immediately obvious to us how this relates to marriage between a husband and a wife. So let me explain this. In some ways it doesn't, because a husband does not make his wife holy. Only Jesus does that. Christ accomplished that for us upon the cross. He cleansed us of our sins. But what he's describing here really, I think, is the kind of love. Paul says that we're to imitate the love of Jesus. Not the actions of Jesus, but the love of Jesus. And the love of Jesus that he showed towards his bride is really captured by one word. It is an exclusive love. I think that one of the ways that, you know, I said to you at the beginning that I think men largely don't know what love is these days, biblically defined. A young man who meets someone and falls in love and chooses to marry her at the earliest possible convenience, is an extremely rare young man. 
Most are afraid of commitment, putting it off. Most are constantly comparing, surveying the scene, thinking I could do better. And so discarding one person after another, it's not uncommon. Many engage in relationships in a very open or casual way, a kind of, yeah, well, we're together, but we're not, we don't belong to each other. We can, we can have other people. And they can exit just as quickly or just as easily. And of course, even if they do eventually get to that point where they make vows, they make vows with the fingers crossed behind the back. Because it's not uncommon, is it, for men to be philanderers and adulterers. You know, we know of the scandal of, of a president giving hush money to a porn star. And, you know, and people still supporting and thinking that he's some kind of leader. What kind of a leader is that? cannot be faithful to your, to your wife, or to, then how can you be faithful to your, to your vows, your commitments, to your leadership, to your service of your country? You cannot. You can only be a self-serving, philanderous man. And it seems to me that as I look around, I, I don't see men embodying anything like this kind of exclusive Christ-like love where Christ set his eyes upon her says, I'm going to single you out. I'm going to make you my own. I want to marry you. Give myself to you and you to me. We're going to covenant to one another. And instead, what we'd rather see is this kind of fearful, self-interested, selfish way of engaging in romantic relationships. There's a poem by, a famous poem by a man called John Cooper Clark that often gets read at weddings um, it's certainly out, you know, not, not, not Christian weddings necessarily, but certainly outside the church. And it says, I want to be your vacuum cleaner breathing in your dust. I want to be your Ford Cortina. I will never rust. I like you. If you like your coffee hot, let me be your coffee pot. You call the shots. I want to be yours. And so it goes on. And it's this kind of depiction of this kind of gushy, romantic vision of marriage in which I just want to do everything you want and I want to be yours and you can be mine. It's all going to be beautiful and wonderful. And in an interview, he, was, he, he, you know, he said he's, he's a hopeless romantic. But then he also said that that poem was not written about one woman in particular. Why? Well, because he said there's been so many. And you think when you, when you read a poem like that and you, you idealize it as the vision of romantic love exclusively devoted to one person, and then you find out that the author didn't intend it that way at all. It's just a momentary feeling that he felt for one person that he wrote it then and it applies to all the others as well, then suddenly the force and the romance and the mystery and the magic of love is completely dissolved. It evaporates into nothing, doesn't it? And it's the opposite of what Paul's describing here, that the love of Christ for his bride is firstly sacrificial. I will die for you, but it's also exclusive. I want you and you alone. And Paul's saying, model, husbands, model yourselves on that kind of love. Let your eyes not wander. Let them be fixed upon her until your dying day. Let me show you something else. Paul is also describing here a nurturing love. He says in verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Now, if you want to understand what Paul's talking here in equating Christ's relationship to, to the bride or to his body, the church, and a husband's relationship to his bride, his wife, and the comparison here, you have to understand, begin with, the biblical vision 
of what marriage is described in the Bible as being a one flesh union, a one body, a one person union. You marry somebody and you become one new person. And so this is why what Paul's saying here is he's saying to husbands, if you love that other half of you, then you're really just loving yourself. And that's, he's saying that positively. Love your wives because, because you love yourself and because she is you. So one of the commentators, F.F. Bruce, said about it like that. He, he described it like this. He said, properly speaking, there is no altruism in a man's love of his wife. She is an extension of his own personality. There's no altruism. There's no charity. He's not condescending to her by loving her because she is him. So loving her is just loving himself, biblically. Now, I don't want to wrestle with this with you just for a couple of moments. Wrestle with this idea of marriage being a one flesh union. Because I think a lot of people don't see that naturally these days. You know, if you were to ask the biologists, is that true? Do a husband and wife become one body? Do they become one person? Then the quick answer will be, of course not. You know, they, they, husbands and wives can separate. They can live apart. They're not dependent upon each other in any physical way whatsoever. And I think this is why marriages are so weak these days. Because we've come to see marriage as a social construct not rooted in truth, in biological scientific truth. Science is the foundational truth through which we view reality these days. And societal norms are things you can get rid of. And so the notion... You know, an idea like you see this in Scripture, that husband and wife are one flesh. Well, science contradicts that, therefore it's not true, therefore marriage is just an invented social construct. We can do away with it, right? Hence why marriages are fragile things, easily torn apart. But even, let me just challenge that a little bit. Even at the level of your biology, there is a profound union between a husband and a wife. People who are happily married tend to be healthier and to live longer. There's a direct correlation there, in other words, between the love union and the well-being of your body, your biology. I have heard so many stories over the years of elderly couples where, who've lived together for 40, 50 years, and then when one of them passes away, what happens? So often the other dies within a matter of weeks. Not always, but so often. Such was the bond. Even you could describe it as almost a biological or physical bond between them. There was a mutual dependence rooted even in their body so that the body gives up when it loses the other half. And any psychologist will tell you that listed among the most traumatic events that can ever take place in your life, divorce is right up there as one of the most painful and traumatic things. It can, it can destroy your health. It can Create chronic stress and trauma within you that is expressed in your body in all kinds of ways. So don't tell me that this isn't true. But even if you can't accept it at the biological level, really what's being talked about here is the fact that we are body-soul entities and you're bound to your wife at the soul level. You become one flesh in that you are now joined together in this indivisible union. And so listen to the logic of what Paul's saying here. He's saying, men, you are expert at caring for yourselves. You know what food you prefer to eat. You know what clothes 
you like to wear and what are particularly suitable to the sensitivities of your skin. You know what chair supports your back at just the right angle and how to adjust it and position yourself in your favorite chair. You know what beer you like to drink and you always make sure your fridge is stocked with the right one. You know what shoes support your feet and what brand of shoes you prefer to wear and to be seen in. You know what temperature you like the room to be set at. And you know what, maybe some of you, you know what fragrance you like to emit, you like to wear upon your body. We know how to nurture and cherish our own bodies, Paul's saying. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nurtures it and cherishes it. And what he's saying here is, listen, he's saying, you are highly attuned to your personal preferences. You know yourself inside out. You know what you like, you know what you dislike. And you are constantly asserting your preferences as you go through this world. Why? Because you love yourself in this physical way. And now he says, apply that same degree of attentiveness and deliberate care to the way you love your wife. That's how Christ loves the church. We are one body, he says. Now, husbands, love your wives like that in this nurturing and cherishing way. And it seems to me that the implication is she'll be happy. And since you're one flesh, if she's happy, you'll also be happy. So it is a win-win in the truest sense of the word. The love of Jesus is sacrificial. It's exclusive. It is nurturing. Let me show you one last thing. The love of Jesus or the love that a husband ought to show to his wife is a prophetic love. Paul wraps it up and says, therefore, this is a quote from Genesis 2, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the quote. Then Paul interprets it. He says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, if you let this thought settle into your brain for a moment, you'll realize that this changes absolutely everything. Because what he's saying here is he's saying that when God created marriage at the very beginning and designed it and defined it, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's definition, Genesis 2. He then says the mystery is profound And this is what it's about. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That word mystery is very important. In Paul's writings, the word mystery doesn't mean like an Agatha Christie novel. It means something that was once hidden and is now understood. And he's saying the meaning of that passage was once obscured to us. We didn't fully understand what marriage was designed for. But now it's clear. God created marriage in order to depict and display the way that Christ loves his bride, the church. Now, we, you know, because we talk often about the, the reality of the church being the bride of Christ, and so you tend to assume it's like this. God made marriage and then saw marriage and thought, hmm, that's a wonderful way to describe the love of Jesus to his church. And so that's the order of things. That came later. But it's actually the other way around. He's saying God always intended for Christ to be married to his bride, the church, and then he created marriage 
on earth as a way of preparing our minds and imaginations and hearts and understandings so that we could understand the love that Christ has for his bride. Marriage on earth, this earthly marriage is secondary. The love of Christ to his bride is primary. Now that has a massive implications for you. Because it means this, men and women, it means that marriage is not about what you think it's about. That it is not mainly about your desires. It is not mainly about your needs, your wants. You know, I want companionship. I want friendship. I want a, a sexual relationship. I want a family. It's not that those desires are wrong or bad. But if we reduce marriage down to the fulfillment of your desires, marriage becomes fragile. Because all of us inevitably encounter moments within marriage in which your desires are not being met. And in which marriage doesn't live up to your expectations. And that will throw up questions. And typically the way in which that question is answered in the world is, well, we better part and go and find someone who does meet my desires, wants, and needs. But what is being said here is he's saying that marriage isn't just about that stuff. That stuff matters, but that's not primarily what it's about. Marriage is rather a living, enacted sermon. It is a prophetic sermon that you are living out as you preach to the world about the love of Jesus for his bride, the church. So marriage has a higher, transcendent reason to exist, which means that when you are in a marriage, the reason you love your spouse is not just because she's attractive or because you enjoy her or because she's your friend. All of those things will be true, but because you understand that your life is a preached message about the love of Jesus for his bride, the church. And when you tether those two things together, this earthly momentary marriage is a symbol and a prophecy about the eternal marriage of Jesus, married to his bride, of us belonging to him, then it gives this earthly marriage a transcendent foundation and purpose. Hence, husbands be more like Jesus. I want to read the last verse and make a quick comment. He wraps it all up and he says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Love of husbands, it's reiterated there. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word is actually fears or reverences her husband. Of course, it has to do with this posture of submission that he's already talked about. Now, I, I, I'm reckoning that there's still some of you here who hear this and all that we've been saying these past two weeks on this passage and it just still grates on you. You know, the, the, the idea, especially that wives are called to submit, and then as he says here, reverence, respect, fear their husband. And I think, I just want to add one final comment before I close. I think when you properly understand what Paul's talking about here, you begin to see that there's very little difference between the wife's call to submit and the husband's call to love. In many ways, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. I think John Stott put this very well. Let me just read to you what he had to say. He said, when we try to define these two verbs, submit and love, it's not easy to distinguish clearly between them. What does it mean to submit? 
It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is to give yourself up for somebody. As Christ gave himself up for the church. Thus, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing. Namely, of that selfless, self-giving, which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. I don't want you to hear that and think that, that, okay, now we've dissolved the differences. We're back to complete non-distinction between men and women. Because clearly, leadership entails responsibility. And I think if there's one difference between the husband and the wife, it's that he carries a responsibility before God. He's answerable to God in a different way to the wife. But in the way that they relate to each other, suddenly all the angst, all the distaste, all the fear that we have about this dynamic is eradicated because if a husband is doing his job well, he's putting his wife first. And if a wife is doing her job well, she's putting him first. And then you ask the question, what is the secret to a happy, long, lasting, thriving, flourishing, beautiful marriage? That is it, friends. Let the other person's interests come before yours and trust that they will do the same. And so you experience the favor of God. Friends, this is what Christ did for us. He put your interests before his own when he was battered and bloodied upon the cross. He came to serve you. He came to give his life for you. And so, friends, listen, if you never marry, or if you had the tragedy of being in a marriage and it didn't last, or if you lose your spouse and find yourself alone, I want you to know this, that the earthly marriages that we enter into and hopefully enjoy here on earth are always a second-rate version of the ultimate relationship that Christ made possible for you to be part of his bride, to know him in love. And that was always the main thing. Always the main thing. These earthly marriages are just slightly inadequate depictions of that. 